Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers and delighted to welcome back Brenda Berg as our guest this week. We're going to be talking about education and education in North Carolina. And Brenda is the president and CEO of Best North Carolina. And that stands for Business for, Edu- Business for Education Success and Transformation in North Carolina. It's a nonpartisan coalition of over 100 business leaders who have a focus on making education in North Carolina the best in the nation. And so they recruited and hired Brenda Berg to head up that, that, uh, that effort. And we've had Brenda on a number of times and, and uh, we're always fascinated in her latest uh, research and, and uh, suggestions and uh, the things that they are advocating that uh, will improve education. So Brenda, first of all, welcome back to the program. Delighted to have you back. Thank you, Don. It's so nice to be here. I always appreciate our conversations. We want to talk a little bit. Uh, we're, we're doing this more and more because COVID-19 is still with us in many cases, but it's kind of behind us in the way that we are reacting to it these days. So let's go back now and sort of do a retrospective on what happened uh, to education in North Carolina because of COVID-19. Go back to its inception and sort of bring us up to date on what uh, impacts uh, we have had in the past and what we might continue to have uh, as a result of uh, the COVID-19 situation, which, as I said, is sort of under control these days, but is still with us. Yeah, it's... So give us a... It's, yeah, go, go uh, oh, thank you. Sorry. We, it's, it's been a, uh, you know, where have we been? Of course, as you know, schools closed completely for at least several months at the beginning and then school districts each at their own discretion um, decided whether to go back into the classroom or partially back and, and so on and so forth. And that, that has its own um, ramifications. But as we look back at those years, the consequences are not just with us today, but I think I fear that they will be with us for decades. Uh, we have, we're now, I, I'm really impressed with how North Carolina is not shying away from the facts. We have uh, the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction is our education agency. And um, they stood up an entity actually before COVID called the Office of learning, recovery, and acceleration. Um, Wonderfully timed with a time where learning recovery is sort of the language we need. And they have done an in-depth analysis of where kids are, where they need to be, and also some of just the learnings from those couple of, you know, two years of, of some students being learning from home. And, um, and what they found is, is, not unexpected, but it's good to have the the actual data. Um, One lesson we've learned is that um, students of all kinds, of all levels of of, of, uh, academic success and from all backgrounds lost traction with COVID. Every single group, every single subgroup of students lost traction. Um, As you might suspect, students who are homeless did worse, right? So not only are you homeless, but say you're living on a sofa or living in a car and and now you don't have internet access and you can't log into class. And so we we marked a 70% decline, for example, in, in eighth grade math scores for homeless students. I mean, just a tragic, tragic number. Um, now they're looking across the board at, I think, seventh grade math was something like a 10-month learning loss on average across the state. So these, what was interesting about that is we're learning that math 
consequences were much greater than ELA, than English uh, language arts. So, you know, we, we have had this great and very important focus on the science of reading and improving literacy in North Carolina, and we're going to have to double down on mathematics as well going forward. That's one of the lessons. The other lesson that we learned is that the schools that got back into the classroom faster did better. The students who were back in front of teachers, which gets us to the fact that we already know, which is teachers are really important and classrooms are really important and being with your peers is very important. And so having a, a mask experiment that we didn't want to have and, and hope never to have again, at least gives us some data and insights into exactly how important that experience of walking into a school building and being in a classroom is for these students. Those are just a couple of insights we've learned. Well, I think that last point is is one that we, as uh, uh, a, unintended consequence of the whole deal, but it is a very valuable lesson. And that is that uh, classroom experience is not, not at least for the foreseeable future, going to replace distant learning. Uh, but that doesn't mean that distant learning is not still a, a tool to use, but it, it is just not as effective as being in the classroom. And uh, now I, I also understand that uh, college students, uh, entering college students, freshmen, had more difficulty adjusting this year. I, I know that's not the focus of your group, but uh, uh, I hear that uh, from several sources that, that uh, the graduated seniors have more trouble adjusting to college in their first year of uh, after COVID. Have you heard that? I haven't had seen that on a on an extensive level, but of course it, it resonates. It makes sense. In fact, uh, just talking about the same um, experience on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, children who were in say kindergarten when COVID hit and then suddenly they're home again for first and second grade, they're they're having real struggles with how do you sit still at a classroom and how do you adjust? And I, I can absolutely imagine as a, as a mother of a, a high school student and a college student, um, those adjustments getting into the college experience and, and being responsible and um, after having this sort of lapse for the last couple of years makes perfect sense. And, and the college application process, I know firsthand is a, a whole has been a whole different animal the last couple of years with you know, test optional and not being able to get onto campuses and, and students are applying to I think think many more schools than they'd applied to in the past. So then schools are struggling to figure out who do they accept and how's that going to work. So it really has thrown a, a kink in the whole process of from looking at schools and applying to schools. And then, as you said, getting settled into the school environment. I know, um, again, speaking from experience, um, my daughter's public university here in North Carolina, um, a third of her classes, more than 40% of her classes were uh, asynchronous virtual. So not just virtual, but like you and I are virtual, but virtual um, with the all of their coursework just being put onto a website and they just sort of do it at a certain pace. Um, and, and again, from our experience, that's not the best way to learn. And so how do we adapt and, and get professors back into the, you know, classroom as well. So let me ask you this. Now, looking ahead, do you think things will be back to normal this fall as far as uh, uh, schools being in session and classes meeting in person? Are we, are we at that uh, uh, stage in this whole mess that we can say, okay, well, things may be finally getting back to normal? Yeah, I think we can hope. I think there are two, th two things at play. One is are we going to see a surge, right? We're hearing that we'll see another surge, but what does that look like? Right now, I think we're seeing a surge, but the 
so many people are vaccinated and, you know, it's the, the consequences seem to be more mild. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have better information about how important it is, like the risk factor, the cost benefit of, of getting students back into the schools, I think are more notable than they've been in the past. So I'm hopeful that everyone is is really invested in, in making sure that kids are in the classroom safely, right? Just politics aside, if masks make sense, great. You know, uh, if, if a teacher is at risk, let's make accommodations. But but I think I, I, I think and I hope that school boards will be more attuned to the fact that that the risks are very, very high for and the consequences are very high for not having students back in the school building. Well, at least from what I'm reading and seeing and hearing is that uh, the cases that we are having now are more akin to uh, similarity between ordinary flu. It's not right. like it's not ordinary flu, but it, the symptoms and the recovery time is more like uh, a, a case of, uh, of a very bad cold or like case of flu. And uh, uh, so we've, we've dealt with that forever. We've always had cases where in the fall we've had flu and, and colds and so forth. And so uh, I guess you wash your hands, you know. <laughs> Don't cough into your well, hands. Let's get back that, to those uh, basics. I'm hoping, that, I'm hoping during flu season that we all have enough sense to put masks on again because it uh, that obviously worked with ordinary flu last year because we had the fewest cases of ordinary flu that we've had in a long time and colds were way down too. So maybe if uh, we use good judgment, we'll put the mask on, not necessarily for COVID, but for flu and, and, and colds because it that certainly worked last year. Uh, so. Uh, so as you're seeing it now, most of the schools are going to be returning to what it would seem to be a more normal schedule and uh, more time in the classroom. Yep. And that's yep. the way it appears right now. Yep. That's what it looks like now. Well, okay. So now uh, what did we learn during the period of time about distant learning and about use of broadband and computers that we can say, okay, we've, we've had a uh, time where we depended on it more. Did we learn how to use that uh, that valuable tool better? You know, I I think you know there's the the upside is regardless of whether it's distance learning or not, teachers learned really helpful tools, right? Communication tools. Um, there are more tools that if we do have a snowstorm, right, you you can continue learning um, where how to post their assignments online in a more consistent way, which is really helpful for students who have ADHD. Um, so there there are some some benefits. We were sort of everyone thrown into the deep end and they had to, to learn all these new technologies. I think there are definite upsides to, to this. Um, the other thing that that I think we learned is that and I'm hoping that we'll learn is if you look at this data where students are months and months and months behind, and we know that they're months behind where they should have been, not just normal behind. We've always had students who are behind. When fewer than 50% of students are reading on grade level, that means more than 50% are behind. And so I think one thing that we're, we should be taking away from this is that pushing kids forward continuously in their in their learning, not necessarily just with their peers. I understand the idea of keeping peers together, but the idea of just pushing kids forward. If, if I didn't learn seventh grade math, that is going to put a real damper on whether or not I can learn eighth grade math. So how do we 
you know, revisit content that students don't know until they know it. And that's called personalized learning or competency-based learning. And I really hope that this is a lesson that we learn and we pull forward into the, the future. I think North Carolina is, because of our, our commitment to digital learning and all the technology that was rolled out, all the laptops, um, that even within the classroom um, and physically being there with a the teacher and with their peers, that we could move toward more competency-based learning where every single student is moving forward at their best pace. Um, and that means moving accelerated students forward faster. It means catching kids up faster and everybody, everybody can benefit. And if you look at the data, there's one little tiny subset of students, and I think it's third grade reading, where the gifted students did better. And for that one moment, for that one particular class. And I, I can't help but wonder that that creating an, a, a situation, an environment, and a technology that is lifting up all students at the same time will be a, a, a movement in the future that we learn a lesson from, from COVID. I want to continue with one more question when we return. And that question is, what did parents learn and take out of the COVID situation? And we'll do that when we return with our guest, Brenda Bird president and CEO of Best North Carolina. We'll take a, a time out for these messages and we'll be right back. Hey dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has mom my. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. 
We're back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Brenda Berg. We'll be talking with Brenda in just a moment. A reminder that this program comes in two different versions. A number of our affiliates carry a 30-minute version of the program, which leaves out two segments. So if you're listening to one of those stations and you'd like to hear the additional two segments, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and you can pick up those two segments. Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with someone or enjoy it again yourself, you can find that also on carolinanewsmakers.com. As I said, our uh, subject this week is education. Brenda Berg is the president of, of Best North Carolina, an advocacy organization here in North Carolina, which works to improve education, primarily uh, preschool and uh, K through uh, t- uh, 12. And uh, we've talked about all sorts of things. But one of the things that Brenda mentioned very early on before we started the broadcast was a new program called Path- Pathways to Excellence. And I promised I was going to leave this to the final segment so that everyone can hear it. So, Brenda, tell us about it. Well, in our last segment, we talked a, a bit about, um, I shared on advanced teaching roles. And so for anyone who hasn't heard it, make sure you do. But we have, um, we, we're starting to look at the whole pathway. Um, you said it's, it's Pathways to Excellence. It's called Pathways to Excellence for Teaching Professionals. And this is a conversation that the State Board of Education, the state North Carolina State Board of Education has handed to their licensure commission, which is the acronym is PEPSI, P-E-P-S-C, and that's their licensure commission, to really evaluate what is that whole experience of becoming a teacher from, from the early licensure to the, uh, the permanent sort of fully licensed um, how does that connect to compensation and professional development and career pathways? So I'm really excited that North Carolina's um, education system is doing something I, I don't think I know not of any other state in the country is doing. We're looking at how do we tie together all of these important issues, uh, whether it's we talked in an earlier segment about the idea of teacher apprenticeship, that somebody who's coming into the profession shouldn't necessarily be pushed directly into the classroom as the, uh, the teacher of record. And at the other end of the spectrum, really, really great teachers who are leaving to go to central office or to become a principal when they'd really rather just stay in the in the classroom and work with their peers to develop their 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 peers in the classroom. So how do you connect those things together? And I'll give you a great example. They're doing teacher apprenticeship in Texas and in schools that are doing advanced teaching roles. Those apprenticeships are getting you know, tremendous support from leader, lead teachers and they're really learning how to become teachers. In schools that don't have that, they're walking into a school building where every single teacher is sort of in their classroom with their door closed, and they might be apprenticing with one teacher, but they're not getting that exposure. And oftentimes, they end up being used as a substitute. They sort of fill a gap within the building. So if we really look at a comprehensive model of connecting all these things together, we're going to have not just a one plus one equals three, but a one plus one plus one plus one equals 25, right? We're going to have a massive multiplier effect. so one of the problems, I've, I've named a couple of you know, residency teachers coming in and kind of being thrown into the classroom and effective teachers not having career opportunities. Another problem that we're trying to solve with this is license, the licensure system is fundamentally broken uh, in North Carolina. And I'll give you one really important example. Uh, I heard from a, a principal and I won't name the name of the county, but they have this fantastic teacher who's been with them for seven years on these like provisional and emergency and kind of temporary licenses that we currently have. 
but they haven't been able to pass this one test, this Praxis exam, it's a bubble test, right, that gets them into their official license. Now, this teacher has been teaching for seven years, been exposed to students for seven years, and every single year she has met or exceeded growth with her students. So which of these is more important to you, that they passed a bubble test or that we know that they are effective as a teacher? This teacher is going to lose their license because we have prioritized, um, we have not prioritized effectiveness as a, a measure for becoming licensed in North Carolina. So I'm really excited about this model because it doesn't say you can't use um, other methods for proving your effectiveness, but we're going to be able to now use um, do your students appreciate your teaching? Do your colleagues, are your performance reviews positive? Are your growth scores good? We can use other measures of effectiveness to license teachers so we don't lose great teachers. Um, and so we don't have that barrier. And that barrier happens also on the front end because there are some who can't pass the preliminary test, even though if they take a circular route, they end up being a really great teacher. So I'm excited about this opportunity. Uh, I think it, it will change the way uh, people become a teacher. It will change the, it'll dramatically improve the level of support they will get as a teacher. And there, it comes with a big pay increase that is much needed um, at both at the beginning level, at the expert level, and also for these highly effective teachers later on in their careers. So keep your, your ears open for that. Um, that's not going to happen in this legislative session because it's just the short end of the biennium right now, but those conversations will be starting up at the state board over the next couple of months. And, um, and, and you can expect to hear some, some stress about change because change is, is hard. And as I've said multiple times, that means that we have to be really open and hear what teachers' concerns are also hear why people aren't coming in. So hear the concerns of people who aren't coming into the profession and then and work through a model. I, I, I believe North Carolina is gonna be leading the nation in the next couple of years on this. Well, uh, you mentioned the uh, legislative session. This is the so-called short session. It uh, is not nearly as short as it used to be years ago, but it is uh, <laughs> uh, still called the short session. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, a lot of legislation that was left over from the so-called long session is being considered. What uh, legislation is up that uh, you think uh, the, the uh, folks in North Carolina should know about and what is the likelihood of it passing? Yeah, so the short session this year, the, the intention is that it will be short. And that's, we've heard that before, and sometimes it runs to Thanksgiving. Um, but this year it is, it is shorter because it's starting later because of the late primaries. And of course it's an election year, so they wanna go home. Um, so we're hearing that if they can't reach an agreement to do anything further, that they will go home sooner than later. So I think this will actually, I believe this will be a short session. Um, for those who are following budgets, they passed a biennium budget, right? So they already have a budget for this year and that can just continue. That does include, for example, teacher pay increases, principal pay increases. Um, but I think there is an interest. The governor has put out his version of the budget. It includes more raises. It also includes more bonuses um, for teachers and for principals. 
Um, and so there's a possibility that um, there's definitely going to be a conversation about teacher pay and, and probably mostly because of, you know, we all know that inflation is affecting everybody's bottom line. Uh, so I think we'll see maybe some more teacher pay. Um, I, I think seeing that in the form of the, a bonus in a year like this, where you can then be more strategic about it next year, probably makes sense. But, you know, it would be some combination of, of bonus or you know, increases to the pay schedule. So that's the, the biggest conversation. Um, I think there are other issues that are, are kind of bubbling up, but a lot are, are more technical in nature. And there is a parent's bill of rights bill that came through a Senate committee yesterday that will be probably the most contentious education issue. Uh, and I invite people to, to take a look at that language. Um, it includes some of the language that um, on... Uh, you know, K-2 lessons on gender, and it includes some language about parents understanding the, the, the support systems that are in the schools. So I would encourage particularly parents and educators to really look at that language and see, and see what's there that, um, that has merit. Um, as it is, we're hearing that, you know, it, it'll probably go through, but that the governor might not sign it, but again, I'm, I haven't have been privy to those conversations, so I I don't know anything more than that. Well, it's uh, you know always uh, interesting things, and of course with the uh, organization that you have uh, and your website, uh, parents and uh, those who are interested in education can always follow up. I, I did have one interesting question that uh, doesn't have a lot to do with everything we've talked about so far, but. School systems in North Carolina vary, and we have about 20, 25 counties that are growing, uh, rapidly expanding, and then we have uh, uh, 80 counties that in some cases are actually decreasing in size, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sure this is, a, this is a problem for some of those very small school systems that not only are, are small to begin with, but may even be facing further cutbacks. What do you see as a solution to that problem? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. We do have a number of districts that are contracting, on, particularly with student enrollment. They may be aging, right? But but they're, they're just not as much younger population. And, and those districts, you know, a lot of districts have a lot of COVID money right now. And so there's this bridge of the, the state has held districts harmless and there's COVID money. But what happens when that's gone? And so I'm really hoping that districts are planning ahead and looking at, well, how do we use these resources to prepare for a world where we have lower enrollment? Um, we're looking at the numbers right now over the last, the people who exited the traditional public school system have, many have come back, but not all of them have come back. So not only are you having just a declining population in some places, but you're also seeing even in places like Wake County, decreases in enrollment. So this, the districts really need to think about what are those tough choices of, you know, consolidating school buildings. And, and that's a very emotional decision to have to make. How do you use your resources to, to, to do that? Um, 
what, what are your decisions about staffing? How do you make sure that your most critical teachers and your most critical roles, that they're feeling supported and, and engaged and you're not going to lose them? As with any industry that has its ups and downs, they need to prepare. So you, you, you've hit on a really important one. Our, and our leadership, our superintendent leadership is so important. At a time when superintendents are leaving in a rate that we've not seen before, I think it'll be a little bit better this year, but over the last couple of years, we've had a huge turnover um, in superintendent leadership in our state. Um, so I, you know, that again, this is why our organization has focused on principal leadership for so long, because those principals become superintendents and, and lead schools. But I would also encourage, encourage parents and community leaders to really talk with their school boards. What are you doing to prepare for enrollment issues? How can we help, right? Um, instead of sort of throwing it across the fence, how can people really engage with their communities to use those resources as best as possible? What, what tough decisions have to be made when we had the recession, uh, school districts had to decide who to riff. And hopefully we're not at that place, but um, school districts that uh, let, laid off teachers who were newer, um, didn't do as well as those who really looked at keeping their very highest performing. Charlotte, for example, kept their highest performing teachers and it paid off in academic success. So making some tough decisions and thinking carefully about that, our school, our school uh, superintendents and our school boards need to, to be looking ahead at that. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, thank you for being with us. Brenda Bird, President and CEO of Best North Carolina Advocacy Organization for Education. TeachNC.org and BestNC.org are the two websites. We'll be back again next week with another interesting guest that Jason Kong, our producer, will produce for us. And we will look forward to having you along with us on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So till next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.